0: Oh god, Hound Dog just got a cramp, Ranta. What's up? I did this on the podcast the other day too. I got a cramp. One sec.
1: Oh no. It's the H Dog Pod with your host, Michael Houndog Harrison. (laughs) Hey, welcome to the milestone episode 90 of the H-Dog Pod, the Brian Monet edition of the podcast. He's not nationally known, but he's been a solid nose tackle for the Seattle Seahawks since 2019 and he suffered a devastating knee injury in their latest game against the 49ers. Monet made the NFL as an undrafted free agent, and he's been with the Seahawks for the last four years. It appears his season was cut short after a brutal injury. Why do I bring up Brian Monet as the title athlete for this episode? Because he was a teammate of my next guest on the podcast. That's right. I got a Seattle Seahawks legend on here. It's none other than Marshawn Lynch. I'm here so I won't get fined. I'm here so I won't get fined. I'm here so I won't get fined. Oh, oh, wait, sorry. Uh, no, my bad. It, no, it's, it's Pete Carroll. Mm. Okay, right. Well, perhaps it's Luke who's talking. So without further ado, let's get cracking. Okay, now welcome on a very, very special guest. He played in the NFL for eight seasons, won Super Bowl forty-eight with the Seahawks, and he's recently retired to become a star analyst on TSN and has started the all-time podcast... Welcome to the H-Dog Pod, Luke Wilson. I'm amped up
0: to be here, man.
1: <laughs> on the, the the legendary Hound Dog cast, man. I'm pretty amped. <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for being here. Well, first question I guess I have for you uh, is, do you have 17 hours to answer all my Seahawks-related questions, or?
0: No question. I could talk Seahawks ball for a long time. <laughs> I would venture to say, too, that I would be one of the better guys to ask Seahawks questions for, not just because I spent a lot of time there, but also I felt like, that place kind of shaped me as, like, a human being, if you will. So I was I'm I was pretty pro-Seahawks and really bought into the culture there.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, obviously, they certainly you were a part of, a, especially your first couple of years, uh, the first two years in the league, you went to back-to-back Super Bowls, which is obviously incredible. Uh, well, yeah, we'll get to the, the current state of the Seahawks in a little bit. But first, yeah, take me back to where it all started. How does a kid from LaSalle, Ontario, get drafted by the Seahawks in the fifth round of the 2013 draft?
0: Kind of a wild story, to be honest. Um, I was more of a hockey baseball kid growing up, and I had two older brothers that were predominantly football players, and they're you know they're good athletes, but they are just really great football players so uh, you know being a younger brother that is I was a couple years younger than them, um, always kind of wanted to do what they did, and they were having so much success kind of locally in the area but I was like, man, I want to play football. like be on my brother's team eventually. And, um, that's kind of how it went. So I started getting into football a little bit. Uh, they were playing in high school. And then also, I don't know how familiar you are with the youth football landscape in Ontario, but, um, because the level is of high school is pretty subpar compared to the States. Ontario also has a summer league team, which is kind of like an all district team. So Essex County has a team called the Essex Ravens. My brothers are playing that. And then, uh, Eventually ended up playing in that um, for that that team as well with my brothers, which was something I really like, you know, kind of reflecting back, really appreciated. And uh went to a camp in Waterloo. And this is kinda a little bizarre, but I went there as a defensive lineman hmm. day one. Um was like my mom drove up there. I was like, Mom, this is a bullshit camp. I gotta get the hell out of here. And um my mom was like, you're staying. Why don't you move to tight end? There was no tight end at the camp. So the next day switched to uh, tight end. They put me with the old lineman and midway through the second day of camp, uh, a rice university offensive line coach showed up. Wow. And that's kind of how it all began, man. I sent some film out. They really liked the summer league film from Ontario. When I was like getting recruited, they're like, Hey, Like we see you doing well in the high school league, but it's tough for us to kind of tell because it's so trash. But the summer league is a legitimate, like there's some legit athletes out there. And um, that was that. And about a month and a half, two months later, had a full ride, committed a couple months after that. I was down at uh, Rice University
1: and then that kind of led into the NFL. That's pretty crazy. And uh, so how, yeah, t- how was your experience in college at Rice? Uh, how was the team and uh, how, how long were you there for?
0: Yeah, so I'm not, it's really, and I don't know how, uh, how in depth do you want me to go with my experience at Rice? Let me ask you that.
1: Oh, uh, as in depth as you'd like, my friend. Whatever, whatever story you <laughs> okay. want to tell, I love it. Uh,
0: you know, when I was a kid coming out of Ontario, you have this idea and I had Division One football on a pedestal. You know, especially at that time, I was like, man, I can go down. I didn't know Rice University, but I also wasn't like a college football fan. I knew Michigan and Ohio State, you know, the bigger schools. And uh, all of a sudden it's like, hey, I can play Division One football in the state of Texas. Like everybody knows Texas is the Mecca of football, right? Mm-hmm. So when I got the offer, I was super amped. And they had a great baseball team, and my plan, which did not work out, was to also play baseball there. And they had a—they're a very academic school, so I'm like, "Wow, this is like the perfect fit for me," etc. But I was very naive as was my, I think, my family, and we've kind of, you know, kind of laughed about it now because things worked out. But the college football recruiting scene is very strange. There's a lot of just KD business that goes down, um, and there's a lot of just I don't know if I call it white lies or misleading. Um, you know, you're selling a product. Mm-hmm. And that sort of like, to me, I went down there thinking like, hey, I'm going to get down there and I'm playing individual ball in Texas. We're going to be really good eventually. We're going to build this program. Like, I was buying everything they were selling. And when I got down there, that was not really the case. And, again, things that I would have never thought about, well, first and foremost, what kind of players are going to Rice University? I went there to play football and schooling was the bonus. And I was always pretty decent in school, but like I didn't go to rice for the idea of like, they have a great, you know, engineering program. And I'm going to be an engineer. I didn't want to call not sure what I would major in. So the reason I'm saying that is from a mental standpoint, now all of a sudden you get this Canadian kid who's extremely raw and like, whose goal is to go to the NFL and you're surrounded by what would technically be like the seventh or eighth picks in the state of Texas. And what I mean by that is if you're a great, you know, the number one center in the state, let's say, this kid's the best center. He's going to go to, at the, at the time, this has changed since then, he's going to sign with the University of Texas. You know, and the number two guy is probably going to sign with Texas A&M. And again, there's obviously A&M can, depending on, the number one guy, but you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And then the number three guy is probably going to go to TCU, and then the number four guy is probably going to go to Baylor, and then the number five guy is probably going to go to SMU. You know, and then all of a sudden it's everybody else. And even I said eighth; it might have been lower than that. You know, you think of uh, North Texas is a good Division one team. The time we played them, they weren't, but right now they're okay. You think of I said SMU, TCU's up there, Baylor. We mentioned all those, but you also got UTSA, you know, University of Texas at El Paso is another one that is up there. I'm trying to go down the list here of like small division one, not division two, division one schools in Texas. And now you also eliminate a large part of the athletes because they're not academically eligible to get into Rice. And the reason I'm saying this is like now for me and why it was kind of a tumultuous ordeal of Rice was because I got down there with goals of playing the NFL and goals to create a culture at Rice University. When that wasn't the case with most of the guys who signed there, you know, a lot of the guys who signed there knew like, Hey, there's a reason I'm not at Texas. I have no shot at making the NFL. I'm here to get a free education. Education comes first. You know, I don't really don't care about football. I just need to do the bare minimum and, make sure that I'm, you know, not late for meetings. I can do at least a little bit on the field and I get a free, great education, which there's nothing wrong with that, obviously, but it wasn't my mentality. So it was very tough for me as like a competitor who was there to like try and use rice to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. And th- that was where the kind of roller coaster of rice went was my first year. I redshirted and we were actually really good. And we had three very, very good players. Two of them picked in the NFL draft. And that was James Casey and Jarrett Dillard, 10 and wide receiver. And our, our quarterback, Chase Clement, had like all-star numbers and was one of the best college quarterbacks in that of that generation. I think if you look statistically, especially that year, but, uh, you know, we went the next year, we went two and 10 and then we went four and eight and then we went four and eight. And then my last year we went six and six and ended up winning a bowl game we to go seven, and six. And, Now all of a sudden it's like, man, I went to here to like grow this program and we barely stuck in a bowl my last game, which was rewarding. At least we got into one. Um, But we had – I had four offensive coordinators in five years, three different tight end coaches in five years. You know, it it just was like a very strange place to be. And when you go to a school like that, if you're good as a coach – you get out right away. Right. You know, you you take the next step. So Tom Herman was our offensive coordinator the year I redshirted. He eventually went to Iowa State, and then he eventually went to Ohio State. Then was the head coach of Houston. Then was the head coach of Texas. You know, where then all of a sudden it's like, again, I don't know if this is making sense, but there's a lot more details that go into like a college experience. And just hey, did you play? Did you have fun? Did you get an education? Like. For me, it was like, okay, well, didn't really get to stick to one concrete offense, never really got to get coached by one true tight end coach other than maybe my last year, you know, never really dug deep because I didn't, it wasn't really every year seemed with a new offensive coordinator installing new stuff. So we never really got to like perfect and really learn the details of an offense and all of these things, eventually I was able to learn at least some of them in the NFL, but it was not, didn't really create a great environment or experience for me at Rice. Right. That's the end of my rant.
1: <laughs> no, that makes sense. Well, I, 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 like I said, it's incredible fifth-round pick by the Seahawks, and you in the first two years, as I mentioned, uh, you were in back-to-back Super Bowls, which is obviously incredible. But you almost didn't even go to the NFL, right? Like, you signed with the Blue Jays, right?
0: Yeah, another kind of weird one. Again, this is just a really how things worked out was I I just kind of told you my experience at Rice wasn't the best. Again, I don't want to paint it in a really bad light, but it wasn't like the most productive. And uh, I struggled early to be in the good graces of one specific coach at Rice. Unfortunately, that coach was a tight end coach and then eventually became the offensive coordinator. So what was tough was it was like, in my head, I was like, dude, I'm really producing for this team, relatively speaking. But I'm struggling to be featured. I'm struggling to get balls thrown my way. Like, I'm making the most of my opportunities. And I'm getting to shit on, you know? Because this guy clearly has different plan or a different vision for this offense. So my thought was, going into my junior year, a redshirt junior year, I should say. My junior redshirt junior season, um, I would actually declare early. The year before I had been nominated, uh, for the John Mackey award not the final, but uh, they do like the mid season, John Mackey award list. And I think there's 14 tight ends on there, something to that effect. And I was on there and I was like, Holy smokes. Like this is best 14 tight ends in the NFL. So then my thought, I'm a pretty positive thinker was okay. Now I'm a year older, year smarter. I'm going to try and be a John Mackey finalist this year, whether I think it was three or four guys become finalists. So I was a preseason John Mackey guy started the season out. Uh, Vance McDonald, who was a, ended up being a second round pick played seven years in the NFL. I want to say, um, and was a good friend of mine also went to rice, but that year they had moved him to slot receiver. So Vance was, and me were no longer going to kind of compete for the same playing spot. We we're both of me on the field at the same time. So I'm thinking like, hey, I'm gonna get a lot of balls this year. Things are gonna go real well, et cetera, et cetera. And that's exactly how the season started, so to speak. Um, I was playing a bunch, catching some balls, uh, and then I missed the last five games with a high ankle injury. It was I came back, so since played, but I came back from the high ankle injury and re-injured the exact same ankle, which pretty much shut me down. And if I was playing it was injected with freezing liquids and i was like used for two or three snaps a game um so now i was kind of stuck where i was like "Shit!" like i can't really declare even though i was on the mackey list like the 14th best tight end in the nation who just missed five games and went to rice university is not getting picked mm-hmm. um so how the baseball thing played into it and what my thought process was was if i I'd gotten a call from uh a Blue Jay scout had a little workout up there. Hit a did, had a decent batting practice session, and they're like, "Dude, we really want you to come down, sign a contract, and go to extended spring." And my thought was, "Okay, I'm going to enter the draft, and then if the draft doesn't work out, I'll go play minor league baseball, and hopefully that'll work out." Well, I didn't enter the draft because of the injury mm-hmm. and the lack of production which then added to the kind of question when I'm going to do with baseball. So what I did that, that we got about six weeks off usually, maybe five between uh, fall exams, I guess, or spring exams, I should say, sorry, and summer school because you had to be in summer school because then you could train with the team. So we talked to the Blue Jays, and we kind of struck a little small bargain where I was like, okay, you're going to come down for four weeks, um, potentially six and see how you like playing, playing minor league baseball, and then go back to college. Um, and that was the deal. Everything worked out fine. Went down to extended spring in Dunedin, Florida, and left after three and a half weeks. That shit was trash, man. What a terrible lifestyle! Oh, God, I'm telling you, bro. It was terrible.
1: Just like the uh, the like minor leagues, just uh, like just yeah. I guess it wasn't uh, wasn't great conditions or whatever. Or?
0: You know, it was tough because. I had been kind of ingrained in, like, the football, college football atmosphere, which is a bit of, like, dictatorship, like, work really hard, you know, very, like, longer days because you have class to go to, so you're up early in the weight room working out, you go to class all day, you come back to the facility, you watch film, you practice, you might watch a little more film, et cetera, where this was my first experience being pro, so I don't want to blame it on minor league baseball, but... There's a lot of time on your hands. Mm. Like we would go from like 7 to 3 p.m. Uh, and that extended spring is the lowest of the low level. I was way behind the curve. I hadn't played baseball in three years. Um, and it just was tough. Like we were staying in a holiday inn, I think in Dunedin, Florida. You know, the food situation was pretty poor. Um, when you're not necessarily for me because I was so new, but when you're um, in the lowest level of an organization that has seven to eight teams in the minor leagues, most of the guys that are there are a little dejected that they're not higher up. So it was a tough, like, mental battle for me to kind of like be myself in that situation.
1: Uh, makes sense for sure. Absolutely. Well, obviously, yeah. Let's fast forward to when you did make the NFL in your Seahawks career. I'm obviously very excited to talk about that. That first season, you won the Super Bowl. How is it to like you enter the, te- the team and you have all these, uh, you know, very much ascending players and eventually that will be Hall of Famers playing with the Legion, Legion of Boom, playing with Russell Wilson, Marshawn Lynch? Like, like you must have just been like, this is insane. This is so awesome.
0: Yeah, it was really surreal. Again, so my last year, I wasn't really sure. Didn't go well statistically at Rice. Uh, I had a very good pro day, which really kind of set me on the path of being drafted. But I wasn't sure how, where it would fall, how it would fall. Um, and Seattle was not a team. Like, they played things pretty close to the vest. They were not a team that I thought I would be picked by. Like, if you had to tell me, like, okay, if you had to rank the teams that I thought would potentially pick me in the draft, I figured that the Seahawks probably would have been somewhere between 28th and 32nd.
1: Wow.
0: Like, I thought they hated me which was kind of an ongoing joke later on that they it was somewhat of a trick. Um, so I did do a workout for them, but I was with two other tight ends, Vance McDonald and another Rice tight end named Taylor Cook, who was a quarterback in Miami that transferred to Rice, and we eventually moved into tight end. He was a very, very talented athlete. And uh, the Rice tight end coach, who's now a very good friend of mine, was just a real – was just a dick to me the whole time. The whole time – during this workout, he was just kind of like saying things, very bad attitude towards me. And I'm like, damn, like, I don't know what I did to piss this guy off, but very strange. Um, so again, fast forward, um, I get picked. I'm in LaSalle, Ontario. I get the call from John Snyder and Pete Carroll. All my buddies are there. My family's there. And they're like, Hey dude, like rookie camps next weekend. I'm like, Shit, it looks like I'm going to Seattle next weekend. And you get to Seattle, and they're a first-class organization. And it's just very, like, the first weekend is just rookies. There's vets aren't even in the building. So it was a cool situation. Because for that, like, moment, you're one of the drafted guys. Even though it was a fifth-round pick, you know, there's, like, seven or eight drafted players. And, uh, you know, depending on how many picks you have that year, it could be a few more. But for the rookie minicamp, you have probably another seven to eight free agents. And then you have another, you know, 20 or so, maybe more 30 trial players. Cause you need enough people to, you know, fill the field up. You're sitting there. And, uh, again, we're, we're we go in the facility. It's just rookies. There's trial guys and cause you're a drafted guy. You kind of have that moment where you're like, okay, like this weekend, you might be the big man on campus. The rookie mini camp ends. And then the Monday or the Tuesday, depending on the schedule, you go into your OTAs with the team, and that was like a very surreal moment where I'm like, "Dude, like, you spent the last year at Rice University. This is end of the season in January because we're going to bowl that game, or end of December, I should say. January and February, you're just grinding, trying to make you know as best time as you can for Pro Day. March Pro Day comes around." before you get drafted, like it's not a crazy timeline from being at Rice University. And all of a sudden I'm walking on the field wearing the same jersey and on the same team as Richard Sherman, Bobby Wagner, KJ Wright, the GOAT cam chancellor, Earl Thomas. <laughs> and I'm like, holy smokes, man. Like, I better, you know, and you, you say to yourself as an athlete, like, okay, you're a little starstruck for a sec, but you get over it very quick. You know, I remember day one, Russ was like, let's see your hands, man. We're just playing catch. And I'm like, you know, Russ is only a second-year guy, but even in his rookie campaign, like, he was a household name, if you like football. I'm like, dude, I'm catching balls from Russell Wilson right now. Like, he's checking out my hands. It was a cool moment for me.
1: He engineered a crazy comeback against Atlanta in his rookie year, Russell Wilson, just fell a little bit short. But then going into your first year, his second year, of course, that's when uh, Seattle won the Super Bowl against Denver, a game, by the way, that I feel doesn't get like I guess because a lot of casual fans who don't care about Denver or Seattle were kind of like bored by that Super Bowl because it wasn't close. But like it's so funny because obviously what happened the next year in the Super Bowl for Seattle. A lot of people don't even like weirdly even talk about that the fact that the, you guys smashed and in his prime Peyton Manning 43 to 8 uh in that game which was absolutely incredible. Uh how'd you uh, celebrate that Super Bowl victory?
0: Well, there's I celebrated a lot of different ways, I would say. Um that night, it was kind of cool. Like You have your own hotel. You're there all week, et cetera, like the team does. Um, and they rented out the ballroom, and kind of Seattle music icon uh, Macklemore came and sang a couple songs. So it was kind of like a private concert in a way. So that was pretty surreal. Uh, you know, for me, that Super Bowl and winning that, like the moments that really were exciting for me, or after the game, kind of being able to share that with my family members. You know, um, they had kind of been through the ups and downs at Rice. Um, you know, been through the ups and downs, even in a rookie season in the NFL. And to be able to share, especially with my mom and dad, like that moment with them afterwards, I should say. I mean, it's just surreal. Like it's kind of a pinch yourself moment. Like holy shit! Like we won. We're the greatest football team on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, playing Peyton Manning, like you said, and playing the Broncos. I believe they're like historically one of the best offenses or of all time, or potentially the best offense of all time. Yep. And to win the game how we did was not actually surprising, but it was very. Uh, reaffirming of our, in our beliefs is like a, who we were as a team. You know, I, I tell a story all the time that the Saturday for the Super Bowl, um, after meetings, I was in the lobby because parents and family members are not allowed on the team floors. So I'm in the lobby sitting with my mom and dad. And I can tell my dad's length. It's like, holy smokes, like Super Bowl tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you know what, Dad? I'm like, I really think we're going to blow this team out of the water tomorrow. And he looked at me and was like, "Dude, are you nuts?" Because they were—I believe—the Broncos were favorites. Yep. Everyone, all they talked to was Peyton Manning and this offense, and Peyton Manning, and you know every weapon he had around him, et cetera, et cetera. And I said to him, "Like, dude, again, I wasn't an expert at the time. i don't know if I'm an expert now, but I watch a lot of film. You know, as an NFL player, you spend a lot of time watching film, and you get a pretty good feel for your team and what are good matchups or somewhat bad matchups." And I was like, Dad, I understand this offense is what it is, but my opinion, I'm like, the Super Bowl was played last week or two weeks ago against the Diners. I'm like, we're going to come out and but, like, boat race this team. I'm like, we would have to play very, very bad in order for them to score a lot of points, and I don't see that happening. And, you know, lo and behold, it's what happened. He, he says to me, after me, he's like, how the hell did you know that? I was like, well, at the time, Peyton Manning obviously came off an incredible year. But I don't think he was doing it because of his physical abilities. You know, this, I believe, was post the neck surgery. Um, Does that sound factually correct? I think it was post the neck surgery. Maybe the neck surgery happened.
1: No, definitely Um, definitely post, for sure. Yep.
0: Post. So he didn't really have a crazy strong arm. But what he had was one of arguably the greatest football minds of all time you know especially playing that position his decision-making his experience you know I have a feeling that he was calling a lot of the plays or at least involved in the install so the scheme they were running was phenomenal the guys are very very talented around them but they were very good at running the scheme Peyton wanted and the reality was the way we played defense was very safe I would say we had a lot of pass rushers that could get to the passer or at least put pressure on without blitzing. You know, we might have a five-man pressure here and there, but very rarely were we a blitzing defense because we could protect on, or I mean, sorry, we could cover on the back end. You know, you have that Legion of Boom. Yeah, you think of Cam playing hits, but you got to think Richard Sherman is is it was an incredible coverage guy. Earl Thomas was an incredible free safety. They knew the game well. Cam, other than outside of his big hits, I think one of the things Cam Chancellor doesn't get credit for was how great he was at covering. I mean, I thought he was the best covered strong safety in the NFL by a landslide. No, and then the fourth corner position was eventually was Brown, but with the suspension, then became Walter and then became Byron Maxwell, and all of those guys played extremely, extremely well at that spot. And They all got paid when they left Seattle. You know, you think of but the reason I'm saying this was when you sit in cover three and you kinda like roll out like, Hey, this is what we do, try and beat us, it was tough to really scheme us up defensively. If you're gonna beat us, you really had to rely on your skill players to run very good routes and or your quarterback to have an extremely strong arm and be able to fit it into very, very tight windows. Quite frankly, I don't think that that's what they were very good at. You know, they were very good at manipulating defenses to put them in a vulnerable position and then taking advantage of that vulnerability wherever it was in the field. When we came out and, again, just kind of played somewhat of a, we call it now, the league calls it Seattle 3, but our style of coverage we were never really in vulnerable positions. We encourage your skill guys to beat us. And I didn't think that Denver had the ability to do that with some of the guys I just named.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and then obviously fast forward a year from then the NFC title game, uh, against green Bay, Seattle was down a bunch. It looked very, very bleak. Uh, Russell Wilson had a number of interceptions in the game. Seemed like all was lost, obviously an, an amazing comeback, uh, with, the you know, uh, um, onside kick recovery, and then the touchdown to Jermaine Curse in overtime. Uh, talk about your two-point conversion, uh, which was just electric Russell Wilson, and then you made an awesome catch.
0: Yeah, that was another strange game because going into it, I think we felt some sort of, uh, you know, how should I say I don't want to say, like, invincible, but we felt like we were a team of destiny again. And that's why the whole... Um, season was tough you know you think of it and we started that season relatively poorly we the year before we started 11-1 and ended 13-3 got the one seed won the super bowl you know and then all of a sudden it's like we started that next year at one point we were three and three you know six games into the year you're three and three with a division loss i believe it was in st louis you know now la rams and then you're like holy smokes like How did this happen? And then we rolled. You know, from there, I believe in the last, uh, what, eight games, we went seven and one. I think we lost. The only game was at Kansas City. And it was a tight one where we made a few mistakes. And uh, Jamal Charles went off on us. So I think we were six and four or six and three going into that. And then ended up winning the last six in a row. Is that? That, and we went 12-4. and four. I'm pretty sure I'm on with this.
1: Yep, that sounds uh, and right. And
0: what was fun was like now we got on this crazy win streaks, late games of the year, we really needed to win. We got the job done. We go into the first round. We get the number one seed. We go in the first round we, or after the wildcard round, our first round. We really played Carolina well. That was a very good team. Next year, the Carolina team also went to the Super Bowl. And we handle our business the way we wanted to win, we won exactly that way. Fourth quarter, we're team down and then blow this bad boy open, so to speak. And, uh, that's how it went down. So we were feeling pretty good about that. And we play Green Bay and we're like, Hey, we got Green Bay at home. We respect them, but like we can beat the scene and to be down there with, you know, I don't know, four minutes left and be down 19 to seven. It's like, Holy shit, dude, like we might lose. And then it's like all of a sudden there's just a little glimmer of hope. And I think that's one of the best things Pete Carroll does is, you know, always have positive, kind of always believe. There's always a little bit of hope. And it was like, boom, we get the ball back. We start marching out the field. And now it's 1914. And we're sitting there and we're like, yo, we're going to get this onside kick. I know it's unlikely, but everybody on that sideline, you just feel the energy like we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And then Chris Matthews comes down with the onside kick. And then all of a sudden, as soon as I took foot, stepped one foot on the field after we got that onside kick, I promise you that was, I'm telling you, I was 1000% sure. I'm like, we're going to go right down the field and score without question. Without question. It just was like a known thing. And we did. And then you nailed the two-point conversion which was kind of cherry on top because one of the funny parts about that moment was going into that play, if you will, we had two potential calls for the two-point conversion play. One, I had nothing to do with the play. and It was supposed to be a bang-bang rollout to Doug Baldwin. And the other one, I was the number one read. So I'm in the huddle, and I'm like, come on, man, I hope you call my number, like call my number. And Bev called the Doug Baldwin play, which clearly that makes sense. So I knew it was supposed to be like a very like quick throw. So the moment I didn't hear anything and like the play was extending, that's when I was like, holy shit. Like I better scramble around a little bit. And for Russell to throw that, kind of wild. I mean, that ball seemingly moved like <laughs> 25 feet when it was in the air. Yeah. That's part of the reason like I bobble it and everyone was kind of dogging. ha! Oh, Clinton Dix was the man out covering me. But, again, just the way he threw it and the angle, and I don't know if it was the wind, but, like, we were both kind of standing by the ball and thinking, like, okay, this is going to be a jump ball situation. And the last minute, it was like a Mariano Rivera cut basketball. The thing just, like, moved way over to the side. I think we both misjudged it. But it worked out. Wilson out to his right. Big trouble. Up for ground. Props to Green Bay for coming back and kicking a field goal, but then we had the Jermaine Kirsten touchdown, and back to Super Bowl we went. Wilson toward the end zone. It is caught. Seattle's going to the Super Bowl. The New England game was tough from a lot of different perspectives. You know, first and foremost, it was a tough, tough blow. The Cam Chancellor uh, sprained his MCL. Saturday before the Super Bowl, you know, a, a 24 hours before. Like, the fact that he played in the game was wild and played well. But
1: Everybody was a healthy
0: hurt. Cam Chancellor, yeah, a healthy Cam Chancellor would have, you know, he's a game changer. So instead of just playing very, very good, usually Cam acts like the Super Bowl four, I believe he had a pick, forced a fumble, like, You know that taking that out of our equation was a huge blow, but then beyond that, um, we were somewhat thin at, you know, defensive back going into the game, yep. And then uh, we picked Tom Brady off early in the game, and Jeremy Lane did and broke his, I think, his ankle and his wrist on the same play. Yep. Something weird like that.
1: And I remember before that game, they didn't activate, uh, Marcus Burley was like a, whatever, fourth, fifth defensive back. And I recall being like, oh no, they should have him activated. Just, you never know. And then obviously, yeah, this incredible play by lane. And then unfortunately, oh no, now we don't have Burley either. So it was definitely a tough spot. And I think if I'm not mistaken, like Earl Thomas and Richard Sherman, they were playing, but they were also very much hurt.
0: Correct. So that whole thing, and it's like, We were up 10 points going into the fourth quarter. And that, to be up 10 for us, I think, that never, you know, you never have relinquished that with that great of defense. But all of a sudden, we're extremely injured. Healthy guys are playing hurt, and we're missing Jeremy Lane. You know, Tom was able to get some points on us, score. And it is what it is. But then going down there and, you know, being down four, and when Jermaine curse had that catch on the sideline where he kicked the ball up <clears throat> and caught it at the five, I remember thinking the same thing. Like, dude, this is a team of destiny. Let's get down here. Let's finish this thing off. And I get down there and we had enough time. And I'm like, okay, we're clearly going to run the ball and we called wide zone to my side. Uh, so I was like, all right, worst thing I can do right now as a, as a tight end in this situation is jump offside. You know, you don't want to be first and goal from the 10 now. We want to keep it first and goal from the five. Marshawn rushes it for four and a half yards. You know, we were down at the half-yard line. I remember when he, I believe it was, uh, where were their middle was it Bikes? I can't remember. Hightower or somebody. Yeah, Dr.
1: Hightower, it was
0: like yeah. a shoestring tackle on Marshawn. Like, it was not a very huge hit if you watched the play before. He just seemed to clip Marshawn's shin, if you will, at the right angle, right angle, and Marshawn got tripped up at the, again, the four and a half yards, a half yard away. And I remember thinking to myself as I watched him get get down and be like, this is a perfect situation. You know, I would have loved to score him first down, but the reality is, New England's either got to burn a timeout right now, or they let the clock run down even more. And they decided to let the clock down even more, which I thought was very, very strange. But I remember thinking to myself, perfect. So now Tom will get the ball back with 25 seconds or whatever it would be. Like, that's a very, very steep task to, you know, be getting the field goal range in that time. And uh, sure as shit, we call the play. Throw the interception, I was on the other side of the field, and I remember hearing everybody hooting and hollering, but it wasn't voices that I knew. When I turned around, it was just, like, the most eerie, like, oh, my God, I can't believe this just happened. It was really a tough pill to swallow.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, obviously, like I said, just crazy that uh, that that happened. And uh, I've had this discussion with a million people afterwards because, obviously, they, no one was such a huge fan. They said, of course, uh, you know, obviously they should have ran the ball there, Seattle, Uh, The narrative, by the way, totally changes if, as you said, you guys get a touchdown there, and Belichick didn't call that timeout. And if, say, New England had lost, everyone would have said Belichick's a moron for not calling a timeout there. So it's crazy how narratives completely change based on the results of something. But on that play, like, uh, I've I've argued this a million times with people, but I don't necessarily hate the throw. I just find it's weird they didn't even – there was no fake to Marshawn. I think you had to at least fake to Marshawn just because everyone in the world would have expected him to get that run. But then I, I thought they should have, like, uh, you, uh I don't hate the pass, like I said, but maybe roll Wilson out, give him a run-pass option, either run it in, throw it away, or throw it for a touchdown. Like, throwing a slant to a speed receiver that uh, isn't like a tall guy, Ricardo Lockett, I would just like. It. But again, though, uh, if you guys convert that, everyone's like saying that's a gutsy call, incredible play, da-da-da-da-da. Obviously, the narrative's completely changed 180.
0: Yeah, and that was the thing that was tough was, Everybody sees the Ricardo Lockett moment and Malcolm Butler driving, but I thought, and and I get the idea of throwing to the corner, and I understand that, and trust me, if we were going to throw to a corner, it might have been me, so that would have been fun. (laughs) But I thought, conceptually, the play call was very good because it's a man-beater. It's a situation where that's the exact look you want for that play. Okay, it's a rub route. Like you're basically getting bodies in the way. You're not on quote a quote-unquote call to pick route, but that's what it is. The issue that what, what happened if you watch the play again was that Brandon Browner is one of the best press corners in the NFL. Time that's where I didn't love the call for that situation was Browner is on Jermaine curse which in, gave Jermaine a hard time getting off the line. It was tough for Jermaine, it's, Jermaine's not even really running a route. So it, Jermaine has had great releases, but it's like, where is he releasing to? He's got to release to kind of pick Malcolm Butler. So it really limits Jermaine in the sense. And then he gets jammed and there's no real rub. And let's not take away that Malcolm Butler made a phenomenal play. Hell of a play. But again, like if you're going to run that route, you don't really want to have Curse versus Brandon Browner, like that would have been something where it's unfortunate, but it's like, hey, in this again, I say this, but it's like this probably would have then tipped it off, so they could quote unquote trade it off. <laughs> but you'd like a tight end or a bigger body to, you know, be able to run that rub route of things, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's obviously. That's a rough, uh, rough one to lose for sure. And we touched on Pete Carroll a little bit. Uh, obviously, heartbreak after that Super Bowl in that locker room. Like, what was uh, – obviously, obviously just spawned into the whole locker room after that. But what did he say or, or what did the, some of the veteran leaders you – what did you guys say after a loss like that? They're just – I can't even imagine there would be any, any words for that.
0: Uh, it was very, very tough. It, there, and you kind of nailed it. Like, what do you say? I, I don't know. Like it, what there wasn't a ton said in the locker room. It was a lot of apologies. It was a lot of what just happened. There's a lot of anger. I mean, you get the NFL season is so long when you're playing. You know, it might not feel long to fans, but every day you're in there, and every practice is, especially in Pete's atmosphere. But every practice is intense. <laughs> you know, the injuries you fight personal stuff you deal with all year and you get to the moment of, you know, just instant and pure jubilation because you are the best team. And for us, like potentially, which never came to fruition, but potentially the next step in creating what we all thought would become a dynasty one day. Mm -hmm. And you're six inches away and you have a very good offensive line and you have the best, running back let alone power running back in the nfl literally a generational talent and you don't give him the ball i mean what are you supposed to say i don't know i mean there, there's literally nothing to say mm-hmm. other than this really i mean uh, i'll spare you the profanity but this really sucks
1: yeah i could uh, totally understand that for absolutely uh Well, Pete Carroll, obviously, uh, you've talked glowingly about him on the uh, SC with Jay Onright show, uh, now that you're an analyst on TSN. Uh, Just what are some of the qualities that Pete Carroll possesses that, uh, you know, the players love that guy so much and they basically run through a a brick wall for him?
0: You know, there's a lot. There's a lot with Pete. I think one of the big things is that Pete really allows each player to be an individual. You know, he believes you can win – with a group of individuals that are still fighting collectively, you know, for the greater good, if you will, a lot of any NFL coaches were very like, Hey, let's, um, you know, let's fall in line here. It's a very dictatorship, if you will, where Pete was the poor option of that. Let's kind of embrace everybody's differences. Let's embrace kind of everybody's different walk of life. But on game day, let's put all those differences aside and come out and smash everybody's head. And we were doing that. It was fun. And it was, you know, you kind of got a little bit of freedom as a player to be a little different, you know, have a little personality. And it really created a fun atmosphere to play in. And he really encouraged, like, people to grow and, you know, really push the boundaries of their own, you know, mental limitations. And I think that's why a lot of people really respect Pete. And why you'll consistently see Seattle teams like this year that are probably outperforming what everybody thought. You know, nobody thought the Seattle team this year. You know, now everyone's upset because they've lost the row. When I'm like, this is still a team that's probably going to make the playoffs. You know, you know, they got to win a couple late. They also got the Chiefs next week, which is gonna be tough. But you know they pull off some good wins here, they're going to make the playoffs. You tell me that people thought this was a playoff team at the beginning of the year, starting two rookie tackles and Geno Smith. When you have Pete and that kind of motivation, you'll just always have a good shot, in my opinion, to win games.
1: How much of a beauty is Marshawn Lynch?
0: A guy like Marshawn, the funnest, most enjoyable, not, the most enjoyable part of Marshawn, is that who you see as far as like him on TV is him in real life. Like, he's not putting on a show for these cameras. He's just an authentic, authentic human. And that's, I think, what made him so respected in that locker room was because for a guy that had his talent, a guy that was that dominant in the NFL, and that dominant as a runner. I mean, his highlight film was disgustingly good. You know, making some of the best in the game look silly at times. Just his attitude... And the way he played the game, the way he ran the ball, again, all of those things kind of combined that he didn't act for the camera. He didn't seek out attention. He was just himself. And that's kind of why everybody really, especially in the Seattle area, respects Marshawn beyond just what his abilities on the field was.
1: Any other teammates uh, that, have, or funny stories that of uh, characters uh, on that team?
0: Yeah, I would say... One of my favorite teammates was ever was Cam Chancellor. Um, I just thought that Cam, both on the field, was incredible. I think that he was still undervalued. I mean, obviously he was an all-pro guy, pro bowls, etc. but I didn't really think that outside of Seattle, the general public really understood how great this guy was because this might sound nuts, but his big hits took away from what he was doing defensively. Not actually, I'm saying perception-wise. People didn't realize this man, one, could catch the ball, pick the ball off. Two, was consistently shutting down whoever he was put on. Like, he was a great, great coverage guy, very, very smart, knew the game well, and could deliver these just ferocious hits. And then on the other side of that, really became – You know, one of the major voices in that locker room as far as the leader, as far as our team captain, uh, as far as a guy that everybody could kind of rally behind. Um, So to me, Cam was somebody that, you know, to this day, I would say is one of the most enjoyable guys that I ever played with.
1: Now, Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you played with... uh Gino Smith, uh, the last year you were in Seattle, did you see anything of him, like uh, being able to be a, a very, very quality starting quarterback? And, and also, uh, are you uh, stunned as most people are as well that Russell Wilson has fallen off a cliff in Denver?
0: Uh, with Gino, I would say I'm not surprised at all how well he's played this year. Um, you know, when it came to Gino, seeing him in practice again, I was with him in 2019 and. 2020. So I got two years with him, and the guy was just an incredibly hard worker. He had an electric arm. He threw the ball extremely well. He made good decisions. Guys loved him in the locker room. I, I think I already said this, but he worked hard. He prepared like he was playing. When, ever since the moment he stepped foot in that Seahawk locker room, um, I felt like this guy you know, has been given an unfair end of the deal when it comes to opportunities and situations in the NFL. And that if he ever gets his shot again, he will be ready to rumble. And that's kind of what's happened to him today yeah. or this year, I should say.
1: Yeah. he's, he's been phenomenal. Yeah. Could you have uh, predicted or thought that uh, like Russell Wilson, I, I, I felt the last couple of years in Seattle, like his play had uh, dipped a little bit, but nothing to the point of, to, to the extent of what's happened this year in Denver.
0: Yeah, that's been a little weird. I did think that, you know, what was tough about Russ's uh, situation was when we were younger, he made quite a bit of plays by extending plays. So, you know, that's not a shock to anybody. But whether it was running the ball or scrambling and throwing, we also had a lot of plays that were made in Seattle where, maybe to the odd fan or the uninformed fan, it might've looked like it was a design play, but even it was okay. I just moved the pocket now. Cause the read that wanted wasn't there and Tyler Lockett or Doug ball or whatever has reacted like the play is essentially over, but we found a quick scramble. So it doesn't necessarily look like a circus style scramble. <clears throat> it's almost like the play after the play So to put, You know, and that developed over years and years in Seattle. You know, and for him to go to a new team with his style of play is very hard to implement right away. And then the next thing I would say is, it's not helping right now, is their run game is very, very bad. And he's always had at least some threat of a run game and usually a pretty good one to kind of play off. So a lot of the deep shots, you know, you have a decent run game. You're not seeing a ton of too high safeties. Because teams are worried they'll run the ball on you. And that's not the situation in Denver. Their run game is bad. And then finally, speaking of a and extending plays, I don't think he's fully healthy right now. I'm not trying to make excuses for us. Mm-hmm. But he's, not, he's clearly not running like he was in the past. And I'm not saying he can't anymore. I mean, the jury's still out. But that really limits a big part of this game, which he was absolutely dynamic at. So I think Russ really needs to focus on you know, perhaps changing his own game a little bit. I don't want to say changing, but adapting to Denver, their situation, their wide receivers, and kind of how his body is evolving within the quarterback position. I don't think that, quote-unquote, all hope is lost yet.
1: I, I agree with if that. you're a
0: Broncos fan.
1: I agree with that. I, think the, I always figured as he aged, obviously, he wouldn't have the, the wheels that he had when he was 10 years younger – and so his game would dip a little bit. But I figure a full offseason with Denver there, they'll figure things out. He's too much of a professional to... to I am, Maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't see this happening again next year. But uh, for this year, of course, I love it because I, we touched on the, the fact that as of now, uh, Seattle has the second overall pick uh, from the Denver Broncos in that trade. No one would have thought that, obviously. Uh, if you're Seattle, Geno Smith is a free agent, so that this is a sort of a sticky situation uh, if you're in that locker room, or or if you, just as a, as a fan watching, do you think the Seahawks uh, draft a young quarterback? Because there's a few that are everyone loves. Or do you think they go a defensive line? Because their run defense is wretched.
0: I would highly suggest them going defensive line. I'm not sure why you would even consider, like, a quarterback. I mean, I get potentially the idea that, um, you know, I get the idea that maybe you want to free up some cap space so you try and go the a, a young quarterback. But to me, like Pete Carroll's way to win football games is playing good defense, taking the ball away, and running the ball. Mm-hmm. We've all seen Kenneth Walker this year, you know, and what he can be as a player. And we've all seen Geno Smith. Like those two pieces, I firmly believe you can win. And with D.K. and Tyler Lockett, you can win a Super Bowl with they need to get their defense where T Carroll wants it to be. So to me, they definitely would roll with Geno and and go from there.
1: Okay, well, I'll get you out of here uh, on this. Uh, you, I mentioned off the top of the podcast that, you're, that you've started one uh, called the All Time Show. Uh, tell us about it, and also I was watching last night. Tell us about the story about uh, when you're at, uh, at Rice with the scout incident.
0: Yeah. So uh, I since being new. TSN, I've met a ton of great folks, just like yourself, and one of the guys you really gelled with is Luke Bellis, who's a web producer at the moment, but I think quite a bit more. He's very fun for me to bounce ideas back and forth, and I think we have a great banter. So we uh, have kind of started our own podcast. Um, The editor is also a TSN guy. Alec Reed, um, kind of behind the scenes dude, who's been really helpful. And it's been a lot of fun again, kind of just getting into this space and talking about some of the more uh, comedic stories, like you said. And one of them was at Rice. We were not a very great football team, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. But later on, in uh, I think this might have been my red shirt junior season. Um, don't quote me on that one. It might have been red shirt sophomore. Who knows? Oh, shit. speaking of that, I think I told you. Oh God, hound dog! I just got a cramp. that. What's up? I did this on the podcast the other day, too. I got a cramp. One sec.
1: Oh, no. Yeah. I was. <laughs> oh, jeez. My goodness. That. Uh, yes, I was watching that. Another, one as well. Just a brutal cramp, eh?
0: Dude, I've been doing a bunch of cycling bullshit. I don't think I'm, like, used to right. some of the exercises that I'm doing. And my fucking God right now. Jesus. Okay. Just give me a sec here. Holy smokes. Fucking leg is on fire right now. Okay, so we'll get back to the Bayou Bucket story. So, that, yeah, we had a funny moment. We're, we're playing our cross-town rival, which was the Houston Cougars, and we generally did not beat them. And Case Keenan was their quarterback at the time. And Case Keenan was an incredible college quarterback. I mean, incredible. And uh, Case had torched us the year before, or maybe the year after. He had torched us every year he played us. But he was hurt this year. So we really thought we had a shot. And um it was pretty intense because we didn't win a ton of games, especially at this time. And we're playing Houston with like, guys like the backup quarterback saying We can win what we we call it the bayou bucket. Again, Case came out, we think we got a shot. Like we were pretty tense. So our coach, as a joke, Rice Stadium uh hosted a one of the early Super Bowls, very early Super Bowl. So it's a big stadium. And we had this old school press box. Like I think they might have redone not sure but it was super high up the very top of the upper deck. And because it was kind of an older stadium, it was very hard to see into the press box. And we're going, we're all at the practice again. It's a bit intense because we think we might actually win the Bayou bucket this year. And, uh, our coach goes, Hey, somebody's spying on our practice and he looks up, and he's pointing this thing out, and there's just a little, you can see a little hat, like a little red head, sorry, a little head with a hat on it. It's a red hat, sitting like, just peeking above this window. We can barely see it. And he's like, calls our strength coach, and he's like, go check that out. Make sure it's not a person. <laughs> so our strength coach goes up there, and, and our coach is making a big deal. He's like, I think that's a person. And uh, we go up, and sure we're all watching, and we're like, God, everyone's banging. Is that a person? Like, yeah, dude, is that a spy? Like, is that a, is, that a, is that a cougar? Like, Red was the Houston Cougars color, obviously. And all of a sudden, our strength coach gets up there, and this human being pops up, like, in sheer panic and starts, like, juking our strength coach like he's trying to sprint away from him. And then they start, like, wrestling a little bit. And then this guy, like, evade, and we're all going nuts. We're like, oh, my God, this is crazy. our our guy evades our strength coach and they get to the door and he goes like open the door but our strength coach is close enough where he like grabs him again and then like between where the door was and where the stands were there's like a little blind spot where we couldn't see so then all of a sudden they get out to the stands area and our strength coach picks this dude up and throws him over the ledge (laughs) (laughs) so we all went from like Oh, I mean, it's probably two to 300 feet downhill. Oh, jeez. You know? So we're all, like, going nuts, like, get him, get him. And all of so like, holy shit, do we just witness, like, somebody die? Oh, like, what God. the hell? <laughs> Turns out the whole thing was a prank. The guy who was the actual person running away laid on the ground, and they had a dummy with a red hat on right outside the door, laying down that we couldn't see. So our strength coach picked the dummy up and threw the dummy over the ledge. <laughs> yeah, that really loosened the atmosphere up pretty quickly.
1: Oh man, that was awesome! Yes, uh, I just one of the f- fantastic stories you hear on the uh, all time podcast. That's uh, that is an all time uh, all timer. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> I love that one so much. Uh, I know uh, recently you won a FanDuel uh, same game parlay. I know you're trying to take down FanDuel. What was that same game parlay?
0: Yeah, so. The goal with the parlay is that I'm not a, a big bet money guy. Like I, I, Some people really love to go in and, and just hammer some big numbers and, and more power to them, but that's kind of not why I gamble. For me, it's more of a fun thing. And we try and thread the needle a little bit, so we enjoy the parlays. I always like some home run haters, but for the app, my goal is to basically try and create – you know, what we call on the podcast as singles, meaning like they're not home runs. They're not doubles. They're, you know, it's tough to hit them, but if you, they pay decent. You know, you got to go one for three and with a single in the MLB, you're happy. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to go one for three now, I'll tell you that much. But the idea is it's usually three to four legs. And I like to keep it somewhere between four and 12 to one based on the game and how much of a feel I have for it. But my thought is like, you know, if we can go and get an army kind of betting these parlays, and on our end of the all-time podcast, we can get, you know, enough hitters. Now all of a sudden we have, I think the last bet that we just hit, which was a 4 legger played a little over 5-1, to one, we had 1,200 people bet it. Oh, wow. So I don't know how much each player is betting it. But, like, just for math's sake, correct me if I'm wrong you now, dog, but 1,200 people, let's say the average bet was 10 bucks, you know, that's 12,000 bucks. Correct.
1: Mm, sounds and
0: good. Yep. it was five to one That's 60 grand, you know, we just smacked FanDuel for 60 grand. So that's kind of my thing is like, let's try and take down FanDuel as a unit.
1: Well, I know there's some betting books. My buddies have been telling me he was too good in his betting that they actually shut down his account for a few months which is like, come on, man, are you kidding me? So obviously it would be a good problem to have. Unfortunately, I don't have that problem, but uh, he had that problem. Yeah, he wasn't able to use his account for a few months because he was too good at betting. So hopefully the point I'm making is that you get to that point where FanDuel says, you know what? This Luke Wilson uh, guy, we don't like him. He's uh, he's taking too much money off us.
0: I, that would make my day right there, I'll tell you that much.
1: <laughs> well, uh, uh, we happened when you had that cramp. Hopefully, the cramp's okay now. Um, uh, as we're finishing up, the cramp's podcast.
0: gone, cramp's gone.
1: Whew, thank goodness. Uh, it perhaps you got that from I know you're training, um, and you've gotten really big into cycling. So, uh, yeah, tell us about your goal for that.
0: Yeah, right now, I'm kind of it's a very lofty goal, and I'm nowhere near it, So, I don't really love like projecting this, but I'm hoping to eventually be able to be an Olympic level cycler. But on the velodrome, I'm a little big, a little heavy for, um, you know, of being a road cyclist and climbing the hills. But on the velodrome, which is kind of a bank track, weight doesn't play as much of a factor. Um, you know, you're they call it CDA. I'm not really sure exactly what. I think it's like code drag efficiency. I don't know. But basically, you do have to try and get smaller, which is not my forte. So you don't have as much. Uh, you're a little more arrow, I should say. But other than that, you know, I think I if I really push hard and do smart. I should be at least close. We'll see if I get there. I in my end I think I might, but it's a long road, but the reality is I'm having a lot of fun doing it and it's been very enjoyable.
1: Well that's awesome. Uh no question about that. Well uh thank you for this uh, amazing podcast Luke. It's been a blast and uh yeah well I'll have to have you I'll have to have you on back on when you do qualify for the uh Olympics there uh in cycling. That that'd be amazing.
0: It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on.
1: That was a blast talking to Luke Wilson about his time at Rice University and his path to the NFL, along with his stories about the Seahawks' two years in the Super Bowl. That story he told about the prank (laughs) pulled at Rice was absolutely amazing. I can only imagine the reaction from the whole team when that went down. That was an all-time story, that's for sure. Speaking of all-time, I mean, obviously, I had to do the easy segue. You can catch this podcast all-time on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the Twitter and Instagram accounts at alltime underscore LW, along with his personal Instagram and Twitter accounts, LWilson underscore 82. That's two L's in Wilson. Thank you for listening to episode 90 of the H-Dog Pod. Bang. This has been the H-Dog Pod with your host, Michael Houndog Harrison. Bang. 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 Bang.